everybody to Ed Talks. Good evening, everyone. I'm Ryan, and with me here is... Mr. David Artley. So, tonight we're going to talk about the whole question, what is an international school? Every teacher working in international teaching circuit will be familiar with international schools moving around from school to school. But when we think about it, what actually is an international school? Now, little disclaimer before we get going, this was the topic of my master's degree thesis, and we have an ongoing chat between the two of us about how many times we make episodes based on Ryan's master's degree or Ryan's studies. Yeah, I always used to think these podcasts were just about having a nice conversation with a colleague and a friend. But actually, it's just to further your own kind of tertiary education. Uh, Those university fees are not cheap. Life sucks. I should do entrepreneurship, (laughs) shouldn't I? Right. Okay, next one. Go. So, what is an international school? They're opening up every year around the world. More and more schools every month. One a month. One a month, month. Cool. All over the world, and these very often with standardised curriculums or very often with recognised exam boards where it's possible from teachers to, uh, and for parents as well, to leave one school and move to another in another country and pick up in the curriculum where they left off. So it's a real sort of network that's accommodating for the globally mobile community of people moving through international organisations or international bodies. But this globally mobile workforce as a result, the international teaching network has grown in response with the hundreds of thousands of international schools around the world yeah I mean certainly geographical mobility has enabled this the fascinating thing for me is despite COVID as I said there's still there's a on average one brand new school a month opening somewhere most of them on a franchise and a lot of them on a franchise from a from a UK based uh, independent sector not all of them but but a lot and you have to ask the question why and um, there's the, obviously the financial hit let's just be brutally honest about this there's a there's an income to be made, but it's also a quality of education that's provided. And when I say quality, I'm not saying that, you know, that your, your A-levels, your IB, whatever it is you're offering are better than another school. But the internationalism that this brings is, is an interesting one. I mean, I, I grew up in Hong Kong. I went to an international school. And when I say international school, it was a school which is just, for me, the context of an international school is that your actual populace, your student cohort, is international makeup. I was in classes with Canadians, Pakistanis, Americans, mm. Welsh you know, a whole mix. And that, for me, is, is international. And when I was working in the UK, some of the schools I worked in, especially some of the boarding schools, were more international in context in terms of the makeup of the, of, of the cohort of the kids than some of the schools I've worked in away from the UK overseas. They call themselves international schools. And it is dependent on where you are. I mean, in Toulouse, when we the international school of Toulouse, it was a predominantly British population because... The workforce for Airbus at the time was mainly from kind of Wales, UK, you know, England, what have you. So it was it was a almost like a state comprehensive, but overseas. So what is international? What is an international school? Is a very very good question from from my perspective. Uh, I have, yeah, I have my own view. Yeah, when I was writing over this for my master's degree thesis, I remember the theory was proposed that international schools don't really have a clear definition due to the, in some cases, the independent nature of them, in some cases due to the sheer diversity and how the schools are run globally. And rather than a clear definition, there was general sort of criteria hits that schools could aim for and some schools would have two or three, some would have one or two only. And some of these big hits were, as you say, an international student body generally, an international faculty uh, teaching at the school. 
normally some degree of international curriculum away from the host country. In some cases, international mission statements, you know, some schools talk about, you know, we develop global citizens and, and things like that. And then memberships or interaction with sort of these big accreditation organizations like uh, the Council of International Schools. So some schools hit maybe all five of those criteria. Some schools don't hit very many, maybe only one or two, but generally speaking, somewhere in that kind of matrix of criteria is uh, the definition of an international school. Certainly, from from my experience, from my experience of schooling myself, I mean, it was it was colonialism which which bred the international schools. It was it was outposts of the kind of UK-based curriculum-centric schools which developed English Schools Foundation, hence the name English Schools Foundation in Hong Kong. Um, it was developing schools to support you know the, the colonial population that was coming out. But since those times, we're talking about from the 70s and the, the 1980s in particular, the, the growth of schools overseas has been really interesting. The past 15 years have seen a massive increase in franchises. So, you know, your, your, your Dulledges, your Wellingtons, your you know, Shrewsbury schools have franchised. And as I said earlier in this podcast, that's partly financial. But it's also to, to help appeal to a local market which is saturated and they're looking for high quality education. Now, you... An international school doesn't necessarily offer high quality education, but it offers an alternative to the state education that's there. And quite often that can be sport based, it could be performing arts based, it can be creative arts, the things that the state system doesn't necessarily offer. It could be just purely language. I mean, a lot of these international schools um, soak up a lot of students and parents who are willing to pay, pay fees, rightly or wrongly, they won't get into the ethics of that affordability. But they do it because they get, a, um, say, English language, for example, where again, it's a dominant language around the world. It's a world of it's a language of business, and, and they like that. But there's more and more, I think, in terms of buying into citizenship and the idea of being able to open up the world of employment. No longer does a child study at a school and go to a university in that country. They will look further. They might go to Australia or America, or come to Switzerland or go to the UK. And so, what what platform do they need to facilitate that? And that's starting to play a bigger game now. It's kind of you know going from the top downwards in terms of where parents are thinking. They're flipping it over now. It's not just a question of do you get good, you know, O levels, A levels, or what have you. It's well, where does this lead, and then working backwards. And I think international schooling is is starting to play a really big role in the decision making that parents are making with their children in terms of where they go on the planet. It's interesting some of the examples you're given there. I remember when I was writing about this, there was three kinds of international schools. And the first one you described quite well. There, the import school is importing a foreign curriculum into a host country for local elites. So, you know, insert the title, the British School of, and then stick your city in there, or the American School of. And then you've got the value school. And I use the example of the International School of Geneva for this. This uh, some sort of whole-encompassing idealism around an international, global citizenry. Yeah, I mean, Ekelin's good because Conrad Hughes is the um, is, is head of campuses at Ekelin. He's, he's very philosophical in his approach to education, and he's... He's, a, 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 correct me if I'm wrong, Conrad, but South African uh, by education and, and, and birth, so to speak. But he's passionate about the deep-rooted philosophy and what, what drives the fundamentals of education, where mm-hmm. does it come from? Um, is that internationalism? Or, or is it, you know, that, that's a lovely conversation to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, um, the third category, as a weird one, is just... Other, I can give two examples of this. I taught in a school in the UK in the city of Birmingham where 95% of the student population 
were migrant, been born outside the, the UK, so came from migrant backgrounds. And it was calculated that there was something like 15 or 20 different languages spoken in the school. Now, the main focus we had had as, as teachers in the curriculum was assisting in integration into the UK for that for the student body. Now, that was an interesting one because was at an international school. Then I have a friend who taught in South America from a Baha'i faith-based school, and they had this sort of Baha'i international, you know, their, their mission statement was all about fostering global world peace and things like that. But we wouldn't really cl- classify that traditionally in the in international school model. But that other category is very interesting. Those times those schools sort of overlap. When I was thinking of that, it occurred to me, I don't think I've ever seen an international school that would have the mission statement to foster global world peace. It's much more about economic pragmatism. It's more about um, giving young people the opportunity to participate in an increasingly globalised world. Foster world peace. It sounds like a, 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 a Miss Beauty world pageant. <laughs> no, but it's um, my first school, which was in the West Country in the United Kingdom when I, when I graduated from, my, from university, was uh, one of the saving graces as an independent school going through hard times in the uh, mid-80s was establishing what they called an international building, which was basically um, a hothouse to attract um, families from the tiger economies to come in and have an, an intense English language course, and they get a couple of um, GCSEs out of it. But that then led into the A-level and the IB structure that, that, that the school had. And it became the most popular boarding house and rapidly completely reversed the fortunes of the school. And not just in terms of fee income, but the mindset that these people were bringing in with them, they were bringing diligence across music, across performing arts, um, sport, and so on and so forth. It wasn't uh, just from the tiger economies, but that was the originator for it. And I think schools are crying out now to find what their USP is, and it's easy to say we're very international and outlook, and we're very, quite often they're not, but it's an appeal that they put out there to try and, uh, you know, it's the, uh, it's the attractive skin they put on what they do. You know, any school which is away from any, you, know, you could be in the UK and say, look at a school in Switzerland and say that's an international school. You can be in Switzerland and look at a school back in the UK and say that boarding school in the UK is an international school because it's not on your patch. And I think that's the fundamental. I think it, it, it's, a, it's a very loose term that all schools are international, I think. They really are. I mean, you get some, some which are, are dominant. I mean, I can, I'm thinking if you go down to Garrett Peninsula in Wales, you've got, you know, it's dominant with a Welsh, it's a Welsh population primarily. But more and more, schools are international. It's international in, in, in the curriculum that they provide. We said earlier on about the population of a school. Does that make a school international? The makeup of your staff. I mean, there's, we've got 50, 000, was it 57,000 teachers leaving the profession in the United Kingdom. A lot of our teachers are coming from India, South Africa, you know, Pakistan, China. We've got an awful lot coming in. Does that make up make your school international? You know, you're... Your, your state comprehensive in the middle of Leicester, full of a complete rich culture of, of teachers and, you know, and so does that make it international? Even though you're delivering a UK-based, you know, curriculum? And so it is fascinating. The bottom line is, though, that franchising of schools globally at the moment is, is driving a, a very mobile teaching uh, labour force, which is making schools international because most schools, especially... With the new franchises, your staff are coming from, you know, Australasia, America, Canada, UK, Switzerland. You know, people are becoming more, A, because they're trying to find a job, but B, also people are encouraged to, to travel more. Um, despite COVID, you know, these things are still going on during COVID times. You know, there's, there's, a, there's been a bigger investment in schools opening every month around the world during COVID than there was before. So something's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but does that make their schools international? It's a question mark. Yeah, it's, I, I don't know. 
we hear the term internationals to a certain extent a wee bit out of date now. You know, that this idea of having international schools was sort of the post-World War II euphoria of early foundations of what would eventually be the European Union, the United Nations. The rapid rise of these big international organisations starts to put started to put international way up in the forefront. I remember reading somewhere that international is an out-of-date term and a better term nowadays would be intercultural. Most of the conflicts today are fought between cultural and paradigms rather than national conflicts. You're not going to see France and Germany anytime soon going to war over resources, but you may see cultural conflicts in uh, cultural realms of the world at war with other cultural realms of the world. That's an interesting point, Ryan, isn't it? I'm just thinking of all the schools which call themselves, you know, like the the international school of, as you said, but now we're the intercultural school of. Mm-hmm. And actually every school really has that element to it, doesn't it? So just a school. <laughs> yeah. We are we are the school within which we have a range of culture and you know, across teachers and, and, and student populace. Certainly with the colonial times in the UK looking kind of sixties, seventies, eighties, there were there were outposts of education set up to, to cater for a UK dominant population just because people were moving and travelling and all the rest of it. It didn't make them international, but they were called, a lot of them were called international schools. It's a real conundrum now, and you're right, the naming of it. I think all schools have an international makeup. If you go to downtown Delhi or go to downtown Jakarta, you've got the dominant culture there, which is the local culture. Mm-hmm. And it's, it, you're, the kids are taught by staff that come from that town, that city. And so I think there's, there are more schools which still retain a non-international outlet possibly but they strive to look for an international context because they want to try and further the education of the kids and the staff within just to have you know more input from outside their own their own locality that's an interesting conundrum yeah it's an interesting one yeah and i think because with all the international circuit and all the schools they become members of accreditation organizations who give a sort of a, a seal or a stamp of quality or a certain degree of quality that you can give to a school the only risk of a system like this is kind of like the McDonald's syndrome, the same thing in each each school, just depending on the country. And what really I think the, the good thing about the international school, international circuit that I think schools should look for if they're not already doing it, is uh, to use this IB term, the globalization of education. Mm. This uh, bringing in these localized resources into the mix so that no two international schools are exactly the same. I was a wee bit disappointed when I read about an international school in Dublin that didn't teach Irish, didn't teach the local national language, only English. And I thought there was something that was a wee bit more unique to that school. Or GAA, sports were not promoted as to the same extent to say what uh, cricket or soccer were. But then, you know, I taught my wee school in the Caribbean and some of the after school activities featured, you know, steel drums, music lessons, and uh, used to have a, a guy come and do kind of traditional African drums. And there was a real sort of localized flavor and the kids would go out and they would surf uh, as one of the main sports as well. And the, uh, the canteen was serving localized food as well. It's an interesting point, Ryan, there. You see, I mean, a lot of the, the current franchising going on around the world is based on, a, for many people, based on a, on a thought process that the British style of independent education is, is almost like a lighthouse of excellence for things and I'm not sure that's the case there's a very good practice that goes on but there's good practice in your local state school and, you know, and, and across all cultures so the idea of making something international I'm not sure of whether as I said it's a it's a little bit of a, like a kite mark for parents to think oh it's an international school that must be good for my you know my little Johnny here who wants you know I want him to or her to, to move into a into a school which has an international outlook and so on and so forth, 
But at a grassroots level, all schools are striving to offer a benchmark standard of curriculum delivery, which gives you know, an equality of delivery across maths, languages, design, you know, sport, what have you. But what makes them international? Do they have to be in another country to achieve that? And what is it that the parents are looking for when you put your child into an international school? And as you said earlier, what is an international school? And, and I think that's, if anything, out of this podcast as we're talking and I'm thinking about it, what is an international school? And why do we call them an international school? Is it just because from where we're standing on this country, looking over there, that school over there, that's international because it's off our shores? Or is it because of the context and the substance of what they offer is generally multicultural and, and, and international and outlook? And I think that's where we're going now because... Again, if you look at if you look at just take China for an example, the amount of UK boarding school type franchises in China is a British based system. But those it's a British based system based on colonialism and internationalism from a long time ago, even though they started in the UK, they are bastions of education for, for a whole range of reasons. But the fact they're on, on in another country doesn't necessarily make the school international. What what is an international school? It's really interesting. I mean, you look at our school here, right? We've got staff from many different countries working in a, in a school which is predominantly mature German, German Swiss, Swiss German, and English speaking. We don't, you know, we don't have Punjabi, we don't have a lot of Mandarin, we don't, you know, is it international? Certainly the question is a good one, and it's not a question of a solid answer at all. Maybe sometimes, maybe even to be more cynical, if the school says it's international, it's international. If it says it's British or American, it's British or American. I suppose so, but would you say, you know, we are the, the Belfast school in, uh, in in Geneva? Oh, you couldn't get enough of that. That just oh, mate, sounds great coming off the tongue. That school would be rich. It is a difficult one to pinpoint in terms of what is an international school? Is it because of the curriculum? Is it because of the makeup of your teaching staff? Is it because of the makeup of your student populace? Or is it simply because your, your, you know, your founders have moved you to a, another country and based you there? It's a real mix. For me, I'd love to think that it's a, it's, it's a multicultural education. So kids are learning about cultures. They're speaking more than you know, two or three languages. They really are immersed in things. That, for me, would be international. But I'm not sure most international schools offer that. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of the episode. What is an international school? I think the general answer is difficult to say. Yeah, we have no clue. We're absolutely <laughs> clueless. So after half an hour, we are clueless. We have finally solved it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the end. <laughs> Take care, folks. All the best. Thank you for listening. Yeah, thank you very much, guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.